Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Before we dive in, a word of warning. This episode contains evidence surrounding the discovery of Dr. Brenda Page's body. Listener discretion is advised. For bonus episodes, exclusive content and unedited interviews, head to the Patreon. Information is in the show notes. Now let's begin. Previously on the storyteller Naked Villainy, Brenda's startling request to her new boyfriend promised to tell the police if anything happened to her. If it may look like suicide, it was not suicide. A tense cross-examination of Brenda's colleague, who denied saying Kit was kind and gentle. I'm just not happy about the, the emphasis being put on certain things, which I don't think is right. And Kit's alleged admission of jealousy. He said he couldn't bear the thought of any other man being with her. It's taken 45 years to bring a killer to court. And for the first time in UK history, you'll hear the full murder trial and witness justice being done. It was a brutal murder of a brilliant woman who was a rising star in genetic research. It would now be almost like a script from Morse. The investigators swarming over the, the dreaming spires of university land. There was kind of palpable feeling of evil in the air. I was told it was just a massive blood in here. Two decades on from confronting evil. So did you kill your ex-wife Brenda Page? Evil is being confronted by the law. Did you kill her? No. She knew it was coming. He said he was going to kill her. If he killed her, he would do it so that nobody would know. Will his true nature be unmasked? Are you familiar with the tale of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde? And can Brenda's own words help secure her killer's fate? A letter of a death foretold. This is the storyteller, Naked Villainy, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. It's the afternoon of day three, and there are still two more witnesses to give evidence. Just imagine for a moment you are in the jury. Put yourself in their shoes, having to listen so intensely all day, Monday to Friday. They aren't allowed to discuss the case with anyone, not even the other jury members, until they've heard all the evidence. And technically, they should never discuss what happens in the jury room, even after the verdict. The jury members have to absorb it all and take notes while still trying to keep an open mind. Just one witness or piece of evidence could change everything. An open mind was not something the press and public had at the time of Brenda's murder. The details of her part-time job were scandalous. Before we return to the court, I want to let you hear from a journalist who covered the case at the time, Gordon Hay, about the scale of the story and the widespread shock at such a brutal murder of an exceptional woman. 
It happened on a Friday night and it was all over the papers on a Saturday morning. Um, I got stuck into it when I came back to work at the beginning of the week. Um, it was pretty shocking at the time because uh, Allen Street then, I'm not so sure about now, but Allen Street then was a pretty sort of quiet little street, sort of in the edge of the West End. And um, I mean, Aberdeen at the time was about sort of to the end of um, the first decade of the oil boom. So it was pretty cosmopolitan, but even then, you know, murders were few and far between. And this was a particularly shocking one because um, it emerged very quickly that the victim was a young woman, 32, um, who was um, uh, an academic, or worked in academia rather. It was almost, it would now be almost like a script from um, Morse. You know, that sort of, the uh, investigators swarming over the, the dreaming spires of uh, university land. I mean, the, the first event was it, was, it was very shocking, as I say, because it was a young woman found, we, we were told, bludgeoned to death in her own flat in Allen Street. Um, but then, in the course of a few days, more and more detail were, were coming out, and the, uh, the detail that, that started emerging was um, led to the intrigue of the case. Um, after a few days, it was discovered, and the police were being very coy about this at the time, that not only was she uh, a brilliant scientist, a research scientist uh, who'd had works published and um, and such like that she was also uh, on the books of an escort agency. Now, by all accounts, this uh, did not appear to be an escort agency in the uh, in the sort of gory detail and uh, of uh, like the Sunday papers, but um, it was an escort agency nonetheless. And part of her um, her job or her part-time job was to be the dining companion of visiting executives, oil executives, etc. Uh, Edinburgh-based agency. Um, I can't really remember which was paid for, for doing it, but it, was, it all did, did seem above board. But even uh, some of her close colleagues were shocked to know. Uh, on the night of the, or, or uh, her last few hours of life, um, she was actually um, dining with two executives in a hotel in, uh, in Aberdeen, the treetops I seem to recall, um, and when she returned home that was when either the, the killer was waiting for her, having broken into the flat, or broke in when she, uh, shortly after she went back. Um, I mean that's uh, my memory of the, the actual surrounding the event. Uh, but then other strands started emerging, uh, which uh, were uh, added to the intrigue. One was that she had divorced her husband, who at one time was a, a, a colleague and a fellow fellow scientist. Uh, he was Christopher Harrison, known as Kit. He was six years a senior. Um, but that marriage broke apart uh, in some acrimony. Um, and um, I remember finding out that uh, there was a court order against him going anywhere near her place of work uh, and her home, several hundred yards, I seem to remember. Uh, now, this obviously pitched Mr. Harrison uh, up as a prime candidate or a prime suspect for the uh, the murder. Um, the police interviewed him several times. Um, I tried to interview him several times, but uh, he wasn't too keen uh, on uh, sitting down and talking at length. I'll stop there as he's about to tell me where else in Scotland the inquiry headed, 
which has yet to be heard in court. 63-year-old Lorna Milne was the next witness. She's a retired accountant who was a receptionist at the Treetops Hotel in 1978. When working as a receptionist, did that give you a reasonable view of the foyer and other areas of the hotel? Yes, it did. If, if I'm standing behind the reception desk at the moment, the front door of the hotel was to my right and the restaurant door was to my left. And in the middle, there was a big open area which had a number of small tables where guests would have coffee or drinks, uh, yeah. generally. Was there a restaurant? Yes, the restaurant was to the left of the, where the reception desk was. Was the restaurant open to non-residents? It was, yes. And from time to time, would uh, people attending the restaurant perhaps sit in the seating areas for a pre-dinner drink? They would, yes, and commonly they would have coffee there. The restaurant staff liked to usher people out so they could get off duty and go home. Yes, I understand. Did you become aware in 1978 of the death of a lady called Brenda Page? I did, yes. How did you learn of that? Well, the first thing, the, I think it was the following day um, that police came to the hotel and interviewed uh, staff who had been on duty the evening before. Uh, at that point in time, I didn't uh, know Dr Page's name, I think it was the following day that um, some police officers came and interviewed staff um, who had been on duty the evening before. Right. What was your shift on the, the day before? That would be Thursday, 13th July, 1978. I was on a late shift. Um, I don't remember the exact hours, but it would have roughly started at 3.30, 4 o'clock, and then finished at 1130 towards midnight. Right. Did you see that lady that night? I did, yes. When did you notice her? It was been about 10.30, uh, because it was after the restaurant had closed, uh, which closed around 10, and before the bars cashed in, they closed at 11. So I would say about 10.30. Right. And where was she when you saw her? She was sitting at a table um, that was between the reception desk and the door into the restaurant, or the opening into the restaurant, um, the, one of the small tables there in the front area. Okay. Was she with anyone? She was with two gentlemen. Did you know who they were? I didn't know them. A apart, were they having drinks or... Do you know? They were having a beverage of some sort. I'm not certain whether it was coffee after dinner right. or whether it was drinks um, because we had the cocktail bar um, to the right of reception and uh, drinks were brought through from there. And from what you could tell, did it appear to be a fairly congenial meeting? Yes, it, um, it didn't appear to be uh, particularly as if it was a couple and, and someone else. Um, the guests we had in the hotel were often business um, people, yeah. so it, it was more like colleagues kind of meeting, yes. seemed to me. Right. How long did she remain there? 
Um, I didn't see them leave, so, but when I finished work, um, I walked around that area to access the staff accommodation, and uh, there was no one sitting there at that time. Right. What time would that be? Um, well, that would have been when I finished work, so uh, 11.30 or, or between 11.30 and 12. There was some discussion about her finishing time, but she couldn't be sure, so they referred to her statement from July the 15th, the day after Brenda's body was found, in which she said she finished around quarter to one in the morning. Does it say this? About 11.15pm, I noticed three people sitting in the foyer at a table and I particularly noticed the woman as she was facing me. I saw that she was with two men, but as one of them had his back to me and the other was sitting side on, I did not pay much attention to them. Is that what it says in the statement? It is. Did, did you say that to the police? I did, yes. She agreed that it's likely she gave an accurate time to the police, even though she would have expected her shift to end earlier. When cross-examined, Mr McConaughey noted the statement was not signed and pressed her on the issue of time. The shift would not have ended at 12.45. Why do you say that? Well, that would not have been the official hours, but I could have been working later in order to complete a task. Right. I, I mean, I, I don't know, but at that time in the treetops hotel at quarter to one in the morning, what, or quarter to, yeah, quarter to one in the morning, what, what would the receptionist be doing? Well, that's why I think it would be 11.45, um, because normally the, the last duties are cashing up the uh, bars, but we also um, completed all the accounts for the residents' rooms, and um, if the uh, accounts didn't balance, then you just had to stay there until you fixed it. Until they did? Until they did balance, yes. So it, it, it might be that that should read 11.45pm, possibly. That would make more sense to you. It seems more logical to me, yes. All right. So far as the events are concerned, were you subsequently asked to, as it were, try and find out or work out who these men were? Um, I think that it was suggested to me that they may have been residents. I was asked if I had um, maybe um, checked them in um, to the hotel. Um, but that's as much as I uh, remember. Okay. Well, were you able eventually, do you remember, to discover that, in fact, they were residents? Someone told me that. Um, it was not something that I had worked out for myself or knew. Did, did you make up a bill for them? I, I may have done. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's a, it's a long time ago, obviously. But if you, if you look at the, the same document you were looking at before, I was not aware of either Mr Welsh or Mr Cormack booking into the hotel, but was aware that a booking had previously been made by the firm SES Manpower for the men as a late arrival. Is that what it says? Yes, SES 
I was not aware of either Mr. Welsh or Mr. Cormack booking into the hotel, but was aware that a booking had previously been made by the firm, SES Manpower, for these men as a late arrival. And then does it go on to say, the first I became aware of the men was when I made out the bill for them from the registration card. Is that what it says? Yes. Uh, and would that be what you'd told the police? Yes. And would that be true? Yes. This bill is then updated with all charges as they purchase items. I only made out a bill for the man called Cormac, as Welsh had not registered, and they were only charged for one person instead of two. Again, is that what it says? Yes. It appears perhaps from that that the two males were, on that particular evening, residents at the hotel. Yes, that's what it implies. At that time, back in 1978, was it known amongst the staff in the hotel that oil men would uh, hire people from escort agencies to attend the Treetops Hotel? Um, it wasn't known to me. I didn't catch that, I'm sorry. I, it wasn't known to me. It wasn't known to you. Uh, so far as that evening was concerned, were you at any time asked to discover or asked to remember whether you had called for a taxi for a Mrs or a Dr Page? I was asked that question. Um, I didn't recall having um, made a, a telephone call to the taxi firm. We had on the reception desk um, a telephone which went directly to the taxi firm that we had a contract with. At the end of the reception desk here, there was a barrier like this. And that area was the porter's area. And it was the porters who mostly uh, phoned for the taxis. But we could just reach over and, and make a call. And myself and the other receptionist who was on duty that night, you know, anyone could have been asked to call for a taxi. But you certainly weren't. I didn't recall it. Thank you very much. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Eric Grant was a 22-year-old police officer in 1978, and he was on patrol when he and his colleague were called to attend at Brenda's flat after her body had been discovered by her neighbour and colleague. At about 3.15 that day, Friday 14th July 1978, were you on a mo mobile patrol duty along with a colleague, Constable Stevenson? Yes, that's correct. Were you instructed by radio to attend at a location? We were, yes. Where was that? Uh, 13 Allen Street, Aberdeen. And what was the purpose of you being requested to go to that address? It was regarding a, a death. When you and your colleague entered there, did you meet with someone? Yes, we met two persons. Uh, one was identified uh, as a colleague, a male colleague of the deceased. Yes. And he had called there to 
see her as she had failed to turn up for her work. Yes. And the other person was identified as a female who stayed opposite on the ground floor right. right. Was that a Mrs. Gordon? I don't recall any. All right, anyway. Did, were you, you were in uniform, is that right? That's correct. Did you enter the flat? I did. For the first time, photographs of the interior of Brenda's flat were shown. It's small. There's a lounge kitchen. There's a waste bin turned over, a sign of a disturbance. There's a two-seater sofa, a sideboard, some hanging plants and a dining table and chairs. As you wandered through that kitchen area, did that... Did you notice anything, first of all? Um, there seemed to be some items uh, upset, uh, knocked over. Right. What sort of items, do you, do you recall? Uh, I think there might have been a, a small table or a chair, perhaps. OK. Did you go through, through the flat to accommodation at the back? Yes. And what did you find when you went there? Uh, a bedroom. And what did you find in the bedroom? There was a body of a female, uh, face up, lying on the bed. And did you understand from uh, Mr. Stephen that this was the occupant of the flat? Yes. Did she appear to be dead? She was obviously dead and would appear to have uh, suffered uh, head injuries and uh, I'd met a violent death. Thank you. Now, I want to ask you to look at one photograph. My Lord, I've given, <coughs> given careful thought uh, to what should be shown. I propose to show one photograph of the bedroom without the deceased in it, but there is obvious staining, but I do feel it would be of some assistance to see the room itself, uh, and that is, so I just say that in, in advance, but I stress that the deceased will not be seen and it's photograph number 13. A photograph showing the bedroom was put on the screens for the first time. The double bed taking up most of the room and even creeping over the opening of a wardrobe. There's a huge, dark blood stain on the bed sheets. To the left of the bed, there's a dishevelled rug. Do you recognise that as the bedroom in which the deceased was found? Yes. And there's obvious blood staining there on in the photograph, is that correct? Uh, yes. As a consequence of that, did you arrange for CID personnel to attend and to advance the inquiry? Yes, we exited the property and called up uh, CID. Right. Were steps taken to preserve the locus? Uh, yes. Thank you very much. Mr Grant, how, how big was the property, do you recall? It was quite a small flat, I think, yes. Do, do you remember how many bedrooms there were, for example? I think there was only one bedroom. Right. Uh, and the photograph that the ladies and gentlemen saw appeared to be a kind of kitchen-come-living room, was it? Or yes, was there a separate room as well? Um, no, I, th I think that was uh, one room, as you've described. All right. Now, when you went into the bedroom, you found the occupant of the bedroom, or sorry, of the house, obviously dead. Yes. What was she wearing? A nightdress. Thank you. 
Mr Grant was the final witness of a long third day in court. Myself and the other journalists were mentally exhausted trying to absorb all the information which we'd scribble down as close to verbatim as our shorthand would allow. The members of the public, who were increasing by the day, also looked overwhelmed. I was approached by one, who introduced himself as Dr James Douglas. He'd been on the witness list but hadn't been called. However, he felt compelled to attend, as he was not only Brenda's next-door neighbour on the left-hand side, but they'd also been working on a study together. You'll hear more about that later, and it has an eerie and significant link to the forensic evidence in this case. He agreed to talk to me and tell me about a task he was asked to perform on the day Brenda's body was found that's haunted him ever since. I came home from work and outside, um, when, I, when I arrived home from work, um, there was a, a policeman dressed in uniform just in the street, just outside our flat. And um, I thought it was a bit strange, what's a policeman doing there? Um, and I was just about to go into my, go into our, down the doorway into my flat and he stopped me and sort of said, are you, uh, do you live here? And I said, oh yes, I stay in that flat there. And um, he said, well, we'll need to come and speak to you later. And then just almost at that moment, uh, I recognised Dr. Bill Hendry, um, who was the pathologist at the time and uh, the police uh, forensic pathologist um, coming out. And I, I recognised Bill Hendry because as a medical student, um, we were all scared of him, funnily enough. Um, he was a very, very particular man, and uh, we used to sit in the lecture theatre and uh, he would ask us questions, which would be really, he would put photographs up on the screen of his slides and say, you know, what does this wound mean, what does that mean, etc. And we were all scared of him because we might get asked a, a question in front of the others. And he always dressed in a very particular manner in those days, which was like a, a, a double-breasted uh, blue suit and he had silver back, silver hair. So he was a very distinguished sort of guy. And so I immediately um, recognised him coming out. Um, then uh, conversation started with more with the policeman and he sort of said, did you, did you know the, the person who lived next door? And I sort of said, oh yes, that's, I knew Dr. I knew Dr. Brenda Page. And then um, he sort of said, well, we'll come and interview you later. And I went into my flat. But you did more than just an interview, you actually got asked to identify her body. That's right, yes. So, so what happened was that the uh, police at a later point uh, came back and sort of said, um, if you knew Dr. Page, would you be willing to identify the body? So I sort of said, they presumably thought as a young doctor that I would be okay to do that, which I was. Um, so uh, the agreement was that I had to report to the um, police mortuary at Queen Street in Aberdeen. I'd never been to the police mortuary at Queen Street in Aberdeen, but I went into the uh, witness, into the identification room, um, where uh, basically there's a sort of a, a long window with a curtain, um, and you're taken into this, taken into this room. Um, I then had to, so Dr. Bill Hendry came in to speak to me, um, I can't remember precisely what he was wearing, but I think I think he was wearing an apron at that stage. And uh, he asked me to identify myself. Who was I? How did I know the person that I was going to go and look at? And so I explained that she was my next door neighbour. We'd done the research, or we're doing the research together. So um, he took that identification. Then the next thing that happened was that his assistant uh, opened the curtain 
uh, and Brenda's body was lying, I only was allowed to see the top part of her head, basically her head, and when I looked through the window, um, I was had to spend uh, a moment just looking to make sure myself that that, that was actually Brenda Page. Um, it, w it was actually quite difficult because she had really bad injuries um, around her head. Um, I remember seeing post-mortem lividity, which is like where the blood has drained down to the bottom of your head after death. And I remember seeing her hair was sort of kind of like matted with blood and sort of obviously injuries, um, injuries in the top of her head. Um, I felt I, there was enough to say to, to, to Dr. Hendry that that was the person he was about to do a post-mortem examination of. So I turned around to him and sort of said, yes, I can identify that as Dr. Page and then left. But despite the fact that that is your profession, a doctor, it still must be incredibly mm -hmm. hard. It was, yeah, absolutely. Because you can't get those images out of your head no. once you've seen them. No, no. Yeah, no matter how mm -hmm. medical you might be in your profession, mm -hmm. when you know it's someone, their heart's so. Yeah. You'll hear more of that interview later, and a chilling encounter Dr. Douglas had with Kit, and we go back together to the scene on Allen Street. The next day began with a video link to 75-year-old Dennis Grant, a retired police officer from Wiltshire. He interviewed witness Dr Marina Seabright, who since died. He didn't recall carrying out the interview, so they referred to the statement. Could you read the statement for us, please, but very slowly? Mr Grant gave evidence by video link and couldn't be contacted to ask for permission, so I shall read out Dr Seabright's statement. It read, I am the head of the cytogenetics unit at Salisbury General Infirmary and qualified as a doctor in this type of work in 1971. During the course of my work, I've come to know most of my fellow geneticists in the world. On a day prior to the 23rd of September 1975, I sent a circular to a fellow cytogeneticist, Dr Brenda Page, who was at that time a lecturer at Aberdeen University, inviting her to attend the first meeting of the Human Cytogenetics Group. The meeting was to be held at Sheffield on the 4th of December 1975, but I subsequently received a letter from Dr Page informing me that she would not be able to attend because of a domestic matter. In October 1976, I attended the International Congress of Human Genetics in Mexico City. Whilst there, I met Dr. Page. She was accompanied by her husband. During subsequent conversations with her, she informed me that they were in the process of obtaining a divorce. Mr. Grant is then asked to turn the page and pick up the statement further down. It continues. After the conference in Mexico City, I came into contact with Dr. Page only occasionally through our work and in May 1978 attended a conference in Vienna, which was also attended by Dr. Page. She was accompanied by her husband, although at that time they had been divorced for approximately six months. I asked why her ex-husband was with her and she told me that he kept following her. Mr Page's explanation was that he liked Vienna and thought he would accompany Brenda, having paid for the journey out of his own money. Note, she must have assumed that Page was their married name, but she must have meant Dr Harrison. Whilst in Vienna, I assume they shared a room in the same hotel. 
when they attended receptions, they still acted as if they were man and wife. The last occasion on which I saw Brenda Page was at a conference in Manchester University between the 3rd and 7th of July, 1978. That was all he was asked to read. Note that final conference between the 3rd and 7th of July, 1978. A week later, she would be dead. The next witness was 78-year-old James Cook, who was a taxi driver and often picked up and dropped off passengers at the Treetops Hotel in Aberdeen. He was shown photos of the hotel and asked about attending there just after midnight on July the 14th, 1978. They referred to his statement to establish the time. Did you drive to the Treetops Hotel? I did. Uh, when you did that, where would you park? Just, right, I would say, across from the Croft, which was just the, before the entrance to the Treetops Hotel. Right. So you would drive up, right up to the Right hotel. up to the door, yeah. Okay. Would that involve you parking your car and getting out of the car? Yes, it would. And, and going to the hotel? Yes. Right. As you did that, did you notice a, a vehicle in particular? I did when I, I came back out of the hotel, when I was waiting for the fare to come out. Right. So let, let's take it in sequence then. So you, you arrived there and you went into the hotel. Yeah. Did you meet with your fare? I did, yeah. Right. And then you returned to your car, is that correct? Yes. And as you did that, did you notice a vehicle? Well, I'd probably been standing, well, I was standing beside my car waiting for them to come out. Right. And I just happened to notice the mini, a mini countryman. Well, a mini countryman. Estate sort of thing or whatever. Right. And where was it parked? Just opposite the, more or less opposite the entrance to the croft. Right. In the car park. There's a small car park there. Right. Was there anything about it that attracted your attention? It just looked pretty rough. Right. Sort of thing. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, <laughs> Needing a bit of a paint, the woodwork and that. Right. And I looked at I was standing uh, alongside it, waiting for the fair, and the inside of the car j just was a mess. Things like thrown about, sort of. Right. I newspapers and clothes. Right. Was there any person in the car? No. I'd like you to look, please, at Crown Production 109. It is a photograph, and we'll put that on the overhead projector. It'll come up on the screen for you. Now, do you see the uh, two photographs of a vehicle there? Does that look anything like the vehicle you saw? Yeah, it does, yep. And is that a, a mini countryman? Yeah, countryman estate. Or... Countryman estate. Okay. Thank you. Uh, did your fare uh, arrive and you take... Take, was it two people that got into the yes, taxi? Yeah. yeah. And did you take them to wherever they were going? Yes, I did. Did you later return to the Treetops Hotel? I did, yeah. How soon after that would that be? Oh, at least an hour or maybe a wee bit longer. Right, okay. Did you notice if the, that car, the Mini Countryman Estate, was still there? I did. It was The car was gone. The car was gone? Yep. Right, okay. Thank you very much. Mr Cook, am I right in thinking that you had been at the Treetops Hotel before you saw the vehicle? Uh, yes, yeah. And on your initial 
pick up at the treetops, the vehicle was not there, is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Do, do you know what time that was? No, I don't. I can't but remember. sometime before... Something before, yeah. But before midnight, is that right? Yes, before midnight, definitely. Uh, and if, <coughs> we, if we have a look at the, the statement, the one you were showing earlier on, does it say there, my previous call to the treetops had been an hour earlier and the car was not parked there at that time? Yeah. So I think if I noted you correctly, you said the time when you did see the car was about half past 12, is that correct? Yeah, after midnight, yeah. So if, if you were accurate at the time, an hour earlier at half past 11, there was no sign of the car? No. So far as the photograph you were shown by the learned advocate depute, I take it what you're saying is that's a similar type of car? Yes, yeah. You're not saying that's the car? No. Thank you. The car he'd been shown in the photo is Kit's actual car. Remember how he described the state of it, as that will be important for later. This is the second person to notice the distinctive vehicle sitting outside the hotel where Brenda was meeting two men. Hours later, she'd be dead. In the next episode of The Storyteller Naked Villainy, Brenda's colleague on the receiving end of Kit's temper. She started shouting and bawling at the top of his voice, asking what right I had to stop him coming to the medical buildings. Her efforts to avoid injury during Kit's violent assaults. I always protect my head. And yet another claim to a friend of her fear she'd end up dead. On several occasions, Brenda has stated that she was afraid of what Kit would do to her physically, and that on one occasion had said he would kill her. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review as it makes a huge difference to guiding people to hearing this important story. This is an entirely independent production and your support is greatly appreciated. And if you want to hear exclusive interviews, longer episodes and insights, please head to the Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. This is a piece of history and you are for the first time in this format witnessing justice being done.